Welcome to the International Association of Business Communicators Amina Region podcast. This is Monique Zitnik. Our next guest is one of those magic makers. They're crafters of words who inspire and make change happen. Simon Lancaster is based in London and became a speechwriter working for Tony Blair's cabinet there in the 1990s. And since then, he's been writing speeches for CEOs of some of the biggest global companies, including Unilever, HSBC and Intercontinental Hotel Group. Additionally, in the last years, his books have won awards and he's kept himself busy lecturing at Henley Business School and Cambridge University on creative writing. Thank you so much for joining us, Simon. It's great to have this time to chat with you, Monique. Thank you. And all the way from London. Indeed, yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Where were you this morning? Are you Berlin? Or? I'm in Berlin at the moment. Yeah. But Simon, I've got so many questions for you and I know they're the questions on the lips of all of our listeners. So let's start from the start. So winding all the way back to the 1990s, where did you first find speech writing? And what was that moment that you discovered that you wanted to be a speech writer? There, there was actually, there was a very specific moment. I'd never really been into speeches much when I was at school. You know, they were actually always really boring. I always thought speeches were boring. When the head teacher was speaking, it was boring. A teacher was speaking, it was boring. If you got dragged along to church, it was boring. And I remember the moment I saw speeches as a little bit different. And I would have been around about 25 or 26 years old. And I was just beginning to break through working in government and I got myself one of the best jobs. I was working as a private secretary to a minister. So this was the Bernard Woolley job in Yes Minister, if any of your (laughs) listeners or viewers have ever watched that. And this was a job I'd coveted since school, actually, you know, that kind of being the, the person there with the minister when they were making all of these decisions and stuff like that. And as a private secretary, you go everywhere with your minister And I'd just been assigned to work for a newly appointed minister, a junior industry minister, a guy called Alan Johnson. And in that job, as a private secretary, you need to get a speech prepared for the minister. So I'd had this done and I'd gone through the speech and I thought this looks fine. It sounds really intelligent. It's a long list of what the government's doing. And I remember going on the train to the venue. It was to the Trade Unions Congress with Alan Johnson, this junior minister, and I I watched him as he sat opposite me on the train and he went through this speech and he was like, oh, bloody hell, this is rubbish. Who wrote this junk? And he, he literally, he just tore the whole thing up, just tore the whole thing up and he then just sat there with a pad and he just scribbled down a few key words to himself, drew himself a few pictures, there were arrows going around the place and I was sitting there thinking, oh my God, this is disaster. We've got a new minister, he's making a big speech to an important audience and he's basically, he's going to wing it. He's not going to be under the control of the civil service. As that, yes, minister, you know, I could imagine Sir Humphrey punching me when I got back to the department. Um, And I stood at the back of the room and I watched as Alan Johnson delivered this speech to the Trade Unions Congress. And I'll never to this day forget how he began. He began like this. He went, Stalin, Mussolini, Hitler. Three of the most wicked dictators in the history of humanity. And they all did exactly the same thing on their march to power. They banned trade unions. 
Why did they ban trade unions? Because they knew trade unions were an essential part of a successful democracy. And it was like, boom, like that. He had the whole room in the palm of his hand. And he then started talking about his own experiences working as a postman. You know, this was a guy with an incredible life story. His first job was stacking shelves in a supermarket. Then he became a postal worker and he ended up becoming leader of the trade union. He told stories about how the trade unions had got him time off, you know, when his first son was born. He told stories about working his way up from a branch official to become general secretary. He told a story about how when he was general secretary of the union, there was a special phone on his desk which had a hotline, a special phone number that was only given to government ministers to guarantee that they could get straight through. And he said that phone only rang once during the seven years he was general secretary. And then it was someone calling up trying to order a crispy duck and pancakes. <laughs> and it, it, it was it was just wonderful. And the whole thing was like storytelling. All of the stats had gone, all of the long lists had gone. And it was his personal stories, but it also it was combined the way he interwove it with the national story as well with everything that the country had been through with trade unions the big strikes of the 1970s you know some of the my earliest memories were of the teachers going on strikes and the miners strike in the 80s like hugely controversial issues and it was like this weaving together of the personal story with the universal story and the thing that blew my mind about this was well there were a few things blew my mind about it firstly that this was a guy who was not well educated, as he himself would admit. He left school when he was 15 without a single qualification to his name, literally not a single O-level. And in my mind, to be a great speaker, you, you needed to be posh. <laughs> you needed to have gone to Eton. You needed that whole education. But he was great, absolutely fantastic. And, uh, you know, it wasn't through sounding posh. It was through being personal. It was through being real. It was through being authentic, it was through telling his stories, it was through telling jokes. And he he had me like that. So this was the first thing that blew my mind. Anyone can do this. You don't need to be posh to have done that. You don't need to be like some Churchill figure. You can be literally a postman and you can make an incredible speech. Um, but also as well, the other thing that really blew my mind uh, was how this was a speech that completely came from him, you know? So the whole idea... And it's a myth you get in programmes like the Yes Minister and the Thick of It, all this, of the speechwriter controlling their principles. It's a complete fabrication that really a good speech needs to come from the soul of the person giving that speech. And in this case, it did come from the soul of Alan Johnson because literally he'd written it himself. You know, the speechwriters, the department, we had failed him. And so I think my mission ever since then has been to create authentic speeches for people so that when they're sitting there on the train and they're going through the speech, they feel they wrote it themselves. They feel it's really, it's a reflection of what's in their heart and soul. And this is the challenge. It's the constant challenge. And it's what I've done and I still do to this day. It's, it's trying to create that authenticity for people. And Simon, if we can just touch on the authenticity there, what exactly do you mean about authentic? Because there are a lot of words being bounded around and, and people having different views on, on what it is. What does it mean to you and, and how do you connect with your speech giver? 
Well, authenticity to me, it's about you're speaking from your soul. You know, you're not saying what someone else is has been telling you to say. You're not like some corporate drone if you're you're in business. You know, reading what the press office have given you. You're you're not a government minister just parroting the lines. You are speaking from your soul, and I think you can connect this right back to ancient rhetoric and Aristotle who talked about the importance of ethos in rhetoric. Ethos is the word from which authenticity derives. That's the root word for authenticity. And it's also the word from which, you know, ethics, the notion of ethics comes and and being an author of your own work. So that's it. In, In a nutshell for me, is about being real, being real to who you are. And if we can just delve into some of your tips or, I guess, methods, how do you find out who that authentic person is? Like, where do you start to ensure that your speech that you're writing for someone else is hitting the mark, that they feel they own it already? Yeah, I have some really great exercises that I do with my clients when we're writing speeches. Uh, that are really good for getting to their heart and soul, actually, finding out what their motivations are. There's all sorts of things I, I do, but one of the things, uh, just to give you a flavour for it, mm-hmm. is I'll show them like a word cloud. You know what a word cloud is? One of mm-hmm. these computer-generated images with lots of words on. And literally it has like about 40 or so words on. And I'll ask them to pick which of those words is most important to them. Now, on that image, I will have all sorts of virtues, And so it's things like, for instance, creativity, compassion, honesty, courage, reliability, resilience, responsibility, honesty, humility, words like that. These are things that are very important to all of us because they're things that will have been told are good things by our parents when we were being schooled and things that have been repeated to us in various ways through various channels throughout the course of our lives. So they're things that we will feel very deeply. And I'll ask them to just, for the purposes of the exercise, pick one of those words. And it's like all of a sudden, when we've got that word and we're talking about who they are through the perspective of courage, compassion, honesty, whatever it is, all of a sudden they open up as a human being. You are accessing their soul, you know? And from then, you're you're speaking to the real them. If you speak to someone about the corporate strategy to 2030, you are speaking to a drone. If you're speaking to them about what the leadership behaviours in an organisation, you're speaking to a drone. They're people who are consciously parroting a script. Whereas if you say to someone, like, why is courage important to you? Why is honesty important to you? When was the moment in your life when you discovered the importance of honesty? You ask someone a question like that and boom, straight away, they're going to take you back to a very, very important moment in their life. That's one exercise that I do with my clients to kind of get to their soul. But there's heaps of other fun things, asking them what their favourite songs are, (laughs) you know. And then, why is that? Where were you when you first heard that song? And then they'll transport you straight back to when they were 17. They were just going to university for the first time or, you know, they'd had some other big first in their life. So for me, it's, it's almost getting away from some of the corporate rubbish frankly, you know, which which no one much is emotionally connected to. It doesn't speak to anyone's soul, the corporate strategy to 2030, you know, not even the people that wrote it or the people that have to deliver it. Whereas if you get to one of the, these things, like your core virtues, the, some of the biggest memories that you have 
from your life, formative, formative memories, then you're speaking to the real person, the authentic person, to use the buzzword. And Simon, I love the way that you have ways of encouraging people to share their stories with you so that you've got that better understanding to incorporate it into your into your speeches. I think as soon as you ask someone to tell tell you a story, it's always a blank face, isn't it? But if you can use yeah. these um, very clever and effective prompts, it's so valuable. But you mentioned the corporate side of things and the government side of things, and you can put whichever expletive that you wish in that little pause there. How do you, in addition to understanding these stories, help craft the message that gets past the tick, uh, the box tick ticker people and the legal departments and meets that corporate need as well? Yeah, well, navigating bureaucracy is something that I've been well-schooled in, having started my time <laughs> as a speechwriter working within uh, the British government. There can be no greater example of bureaucracy in the world <laughs> than the British government. But I tell you what, my, my whole experience of working within government was that if the Secretary of State was happy, the whole department was happy. You know, so for me as a speechwriter, as long as I could look after the Secretary of State, then everyone else was super happy. What was a nightmare for everyone was if you had a Secretary of State who was going rogue, <laughs> so to speak, and had lost trust with the department and was just going out and doing their own thing and saying their own thing. That created like serious, serious problems for government. And I mean, proper government, how you govern the country. If you had someone going out making commitments that were not properly costed or whatever, really big problem. So Arthur, my, my approach has always been client focused. Keep your principal happy. If you keep your principal happy, everyone else is going to be happy. And I find it the same now working uh, for business leaders. In fact, I'll be honest with you, I think a lot of the reason why I get brought in to big companies is because being external, I'm not caught up with the whole tide of bureaucracy and internal politics that is going on within the company, I can just bypass it all. And if there's if someone in the company has got a problem with the speech, they can just blame it on this strange external. This this well it's this speechwriter who who wrote it, you know, and the CEO's happy with it, so we, we should probably run with it. And so I find that as as long as you explain to people why you're doing what you're doing, what your strategy is why it is that the stories matter, why it is that framing things around morality matters, why it's so important you get metaphors right, then people will come along with you, you know. And I, I find lawyers, actually, obviously, who study rhetoric themselves, they, they completely get it, you know. And because my whole approach to speech writing is that you start really big, you know, you start with an external perspective. You start by talking about things that everyone is bound to care about, everyone's bound to agree with. And then you move towards the more narrow stuff, the more niche stuff, whether it's what the company is doing or what the government is doing or whatever. And the lawyers don't mind any of that. You know, you can get a thousand words from the CEO about honesty. The lawyer doesn't care about any of it. It's not that that they're worried about. What they're worried about is what are you committing the company to? <laughs> you know, are you disclosing something that should not be disclosed? And and by minimising the, the amount of airtime that is spent on specific company stuff, 
I find the lawyers are actually happier than if you spend 2,500 words talking about what the company is actually doing, the specifics. It sounds like you've got a lot of different departments and people worked out very, very nicely there, Simon, or at least a good understanding of how it works. I'm just curious, do you ever have that blank page syndrome, that little issue of sitting there facing no longer a piece of paper but a uh, an open Word doc and not sure where to yes. start? I know that you've got all the yeah. stories and, and content, but... What do you do? Yeah, I mean, this is what you have to do. This is what your job is as a speechwriter. You've got to fill that blank page. So I find the worst thing that you can possibly do if you've got the blank screen in front of you is just to stare at that blank screen. Literally, go and do something completely different instead. You know, many of your your viewers, I'm sure, will have seen the graphic showing about our brain activity when we're still compared to our brain activity levels when we're moving. Get yourself moving. If you get your body moving, your brain's going to start moving as well. So I will frequently just do some exercise if I've got to think something through, you know, set myself a challenge. I'll be thinking, right, okay, we've got to speak to this audience about, you know, what AI means to them, how they should be using AI or, you know, whatever it is. I'll take that. I'll set that as my challenge and then I'll, I'll do a 5K run. And, you know, half an hour later, my brain is absolutely buzzing with ideas and I'm then... You know, I then spend the next two hours in front of the screen trying to sort it out and get it all in the the right order. But I find just get moving. Do not stare at the screen, you know, get active. You know, I I find the swimming pool is great as well, actually, just going up and down. And you you kind of, you know, I I almost walk myself through a speech as I'm doing um, lengths. I find it really meditative as well, running, and I'm glad to hear it's um, working at the same time, if you know what I mean. But it's interesting because a lot of graphic designers, for example, who I've spoken to about the idea of creativity have also expressed that need to stop and, and walk away and let the creative juices flow through other activity or fresh air, a little walk uh, to achieve the same thing and, and that idea of sitting there and, and forcing yourself to fill the hour and to work faster and faster just goes against the grain and, and creates more yeah. blockage and stress. You need the stimulation, don't you? I don't know whether you're a fan of the Beatles, but I've just watched the wonderful Peter Jackson. <laughs> yeah, the Peter Jackson documentary about those Let It Be sessions, which I find so, so, so inspiring because you see these are, these are four people absolutely at the pinnacle of their career. You know, they have smashed it. In the last year, they've done like, you know, Sergeant Pepper, the White Album, Hey Jude and all of that. And they sit around making their new album. And instead of sitting there thinking, oh, God, we've got all of this pressure... They're sitting there chewing the fat about, oh, do you watch this programme on telly last night? Do you see that programme about Martin Luther King? You know, and then they're talking about what's in the newspaper and they're getting songs out of this. So it's not stupid. It's not wasting time chewing the fat and watching stuff. You know, that's where they got their ideas from. So the song, I mean, I think two of the songs in, in there were influenced by speeches. So you've got Get Back itself which was inspired by, we had a British politician back in the late 60s called Enoch Powell, 
who was going on about immigrants, you know, and they're taking our council houses and get back to where you once belonged. That was the line. You know, there's a third verse, which the Beatles thankfully didn't sing about all these Pakistanis taking our council houses, which McCartney did write out and they did sing in some of the demo versions. But literally it was a parody of, you know, a race hate speech that was big at the time. And so that inspired one song, completely random. And, uh, and the other one was I Have a Feeling, which you can see they do it in there where they were talking about Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, you know, I've got a feeling, you know, and so this is the thing. You just you need your inspiration to be coming in. One of my lines that I love from um, in terms of speech writing advice is I've probably got the book there somewhere, actually, is Peggy Noonan's book. You know, the Reagan speech writer. She wrote speeches for Ronald Reagan. She also advised on the West Wing. She was the consultant on the West Wing and she wrote a brilliant book on speech writing. And she had this line that reading is collecting wisdom and writing is spending it. And I love that. It's just this idea, almost like a bank account, you need stuff going in, and then you have stuff going out. And I think that's exactly right. So if you're straining to get things coming out, you just need to put some stuff in. Sit back and watch Netflix, and that's a good investment of your time. <laughs> I love it, Simon. And speaking of Netflix and videos and interesting content, I did watch your TEDx. What was it like? What was it like doing a TEDx? It was it was literally it was it was one of the most terrifying but also one of the most exhilarating moments ultimately of my life. Obviously for someone who's spent their whole career and devoted their career to helping people speak on stage, it was high stakes for me, you know, if this went belly up, the whole career was over. And I've never done a big speech like this before. My TEDx was literally like my introduction to public speaking as well. So I knew the stakes were high, but I bloody loved it. I absolutely loved it. And the exhilaration at the end, you'll have seen I improvised the speech when I did mm -hmm. that TEDx. So I set out six rhetorical devices and then I invite the audience. I say, give me a challenge, like any challenge, and I'll improvise the speech using those techniques right here and now. And they, they threw me a challenge. It was to improvise a speech in favour of Donald Trump. This was while he was campaigning to be president in 2016. And I did it and it ended with a big high, huge round of applause. And the exhilaration at the end was just extraordinary. And uh, the people, the good people of Verona, it was a wonderful audience. There were like a thousand people there. They were, I mean, I felt like a rock star <laughs> afterwards. People were getting selfies with me and there were autographs and all of this. And, and I thought, wow, I kind of like this. And so I give keynotes all of the time now. And it is one of the favourite things that I do, actually, just going out and inspiring people and, and doing what Alan Johnson did, actually, telling a few stories, telling a few jokes, but also giving people some little nuggets of wisdom at the same time. And I'd encourage all of our uh, listeners and viewers to watch your TEDx. I really enjoyed it as well. It just a, li a little sort of side question on that. Is it true that they make you rehearse it a hundred times? Yeah, they, they really go through the whole script with you. And it, it surprised me, actually. And they changed it and they changed it for the better. Um, so my original draft of that speech was actually, it was more of a kind of almost like an academic analysis of the way that rhetorical devices could be used for and against 
any issue. And I was using uh, the Brexit debate. We were going through the Brexit referendum at the time. And I, my original draft was analysing the way that David Cameron and Boris Johnson, whilst being for and against Brexit, were both using exactly the same devices as they made their arguments. And the TEDx hosts said, ah, it's a bit too political. We don't want to be political. So they said, can you do something else? And, and I'd done this improv trick before. And I said, well, I could do it. I could improvise the speech on the spot. And they were straight away like, love it. Let's do it. That'd be fantastic. And so they gave me the magic moment. I always think every speech needs a magic moment, a little moment of jeopardy, a moment of vulnerability, a moment of honesty, a moment of audience interaction. And that was the magic moment in that speech when I, I said, right, you know, I've taught the talk. Now put me on the spot and I'll, I'll walk the walk for you. You know, that was the, the, so it, it was brilliant, the process working through them. And you do a rehearsal in person as well. So as I recall, the, the actual TEDx event was on the Sunday. I'd flown in for the Saturday um, and we'd had a dress rehearsal there. So I went pretty much straight from the airport to the venue and did a rehearsal. And then someone in the audience said, make the case for more royal argue why the world needs more royal right now. <laughs> and I was like, right, um, okay, and I did it. And I thought, well, if I could make the case for royal in a convincing way, I, c I can deal with anything the audience throws at me on for the real thing. And so that gave me real confidence on the day. I was like, no one's going to give me a challenge as hard as the one they gave me yesterday. But I've had also, it's funny actually <laughs> when I do that, because people do throw me the most absurd challenges and I've had to make the most extraordinary speeches over the years in favour of big bottoms and all sorts of things. <laughs> I mean, it's hilarious. But if I can just say, I love the irony that it was political in the end anyway, so... Yeah, but it wasn't my fault. It was the audience's fault. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so what's next for you, Simon, and what are your predictions for the future? Well, I mean, I, I find the way that communication is changing before our very eyes incredibly exciting, the ease with which any single person on the planet can now connect with a mass audience you know, I find that very, very exciting and very empowering. I do believe in the democratisation of these techniques, which is is was the message of my TEDx talk. I think everyone should understand rhetoric. I think it should be a core part of the curriculum. In the past, though, even if people understood these devices, they couldn't necessarily get a book published or get on TV, whereas, of course, now anyone with a smartphone can do precisely that. So I find this very, very exciting, um, and I love, love, love like the kind of content that you were getting from real grassroots, you know, from people who are unexpected, people like your Greta Thunbergs, just a schoolgirl who has had enough. You know, I mean, this is how you see real change emerging. So I find all of that stuff uh, very exciting. And also, I think there's such a huge opportunity now for people to stand out against AI, because so many people now are using ChatGPT in a really, really stupid way, if you forgive me saying, you know, in a way that you can see they're using ChatGPT. I can see it on LinkedIn now. Now, when I scroll through LinkedIn, I'm like, come on, that's GPT. It's killer. It's too florid. It's too ornate. You've got mixed metaphors. It's hyperbole. That is the sound of, of ChatGPT. But as more people start turning to AI to craft their content, the opportunity for good people 
to come through just by doing some of the stuff that I was talking about at the beginning. You know, talk about where you come from. Talk about what you really care about. You are going to really stand out. You're going to sound very, very different to the um, automated people. I'm not I'm not slagging off ChatGPT. I'm a big fan of ChatGPT. I think it can work very well with speech writers and with people who are crafting speeches. But my God, anyone who puts their trust in ChatGPT and thinks that's going to have the last word on my speech, boy, you know, you're going to head, you're heading for a fall. It's one of the key themes of my upcoming book, Simon, the need to know what good looks like, because if we rely on what's being uh, dished up to us, spat out, served up, gifted, however you like to think of it, there needs to be a human on the other side who, who knows what a good speech looks like, knows. So important. Yeah, there's, there was, um, I, I, I got involved, like someone asked me to, and I, I did that, I wasn't charging for this, but someone, I had a friend in Silicon Valley who was developing like a product to help people with their public speaking. And one of the measures that it had built in there was an um and ah check. So checking for your hesitancies when you spoke. And the premise is that people who um and ah are bad speakers. Now, at the time they were asking me to check this out, we had Boris Johnson as our prime minister here, who his politics are not my politics, but boy, do I take my hat off to him as a communicator. I think he's the most effective communicator we have had in British politics in the last generation, without a doubt. We would not have voted for Brexit without that one man. And yet he measurably ums, ars, stutters, trips over his words, like once every two seconds, 30 times a minute. Now, this is someone that this app would have said, you're a bad public speaker. And yet he's probably our most effective public speaker. And so it's it's just wrong. You know, as long as people are looking at them when they're speaking and thinking, you're for real, you know, you're authentic, whatever it is. That's all that matters. Real In real conversation, people do hesitate. They do um and ah. And there's nothing more frustrating than listening to someone who's taking such care to speak precisely and not to um and ah that they lose any sense of humanity. You know, it's like they've had their souls seeps pulled out from them. <laughs> so, yeah, you're absolutely right. We need to be very careful and people need to be human. And uh, I guess that's my, my just next little curious question for you, Simon. Do you think that there will be, you know, we've had the Instagram society and the perfection pursuit over the past couple of years, do you think there's going to be a twist and turn towards the natural, towards the celebration of imperfection? Yeah, absolutely. I believe that we all already do that. You know, it's this whole thing about uh, vulnerability and showing, speaking about how you've learned from errors in the past, which I think is incredibly inspiring to people and incredibly empowering to people because we've all cocked up in our lives but as long as you've learnt from your cock-ups then you're doing fine and I think this is absolutely right I mean the analogy I always um, think of is is the way that you know when you see adverts for burgers or like fast food or anything like that and they deliberately obviously they can craft the perfect burger so it's perfectly straight but deliberately 
it's a bit imperfect because that's how when we look at something, we, we recognise that it's it's something real. And I think really through all of, all of, you know, I've written um, a few books, now I've written four books on communication. I hope the theme coming through all of those books is really be true to yourself, be true to who you are and be good. <laughs> because if you are those things, then people will just see it. You're not putting on an act, you know, just tap into the things that make you your best and share them with people. Explain why you are like that. Why do you believe in courage? Why do you believe in honesty? Why do you believe in responsibility? And if you do that and you speak to people's sense of morality, you're actually meeting one of their deepest needs. And in return, they'll give you all of the support that you're looking for. Leadership is is a trade. You give people what they want and in return, they will give you their support. Simon, I could talk to you for hours on these topics. Was there anything that, any little last little tip or anything else that you would like to share with our listeners? And and my other question was, is it okay if they reach out to you on LinkedIn after reading your book, of yes. course? Yes, <laughs> please do. Books. Please do connect with me on LinkedIn. I do post stuff, videos um, on LinkedIn uh, from time to time. And please drop me a message, C- you know, keep in touch. I, I'm i always going around the world and delivering keynotes, running workshops on the language of leadership. It's what I, I love to do. So please do give me a shout either on LinkedIn, I'm on TikTok as well, the speechwriter one, or just drop me an email. I'm on simon at bespokespeeches.com. And I think my last advice, which I think sums up what we've been talking about, needs to be in three words three word slogan keep it real love it thank you so much for your time simon Uh, thank you on behalf of all of our viewers and listeners and i wish you all the best let's keep in touch and to you as well thanks a lot cheers monique all the best (laughs) 